morning, we're going to take the opportunity to have you uh, fill out the uh, Google form for registering for the Equip Seminar. Uh, a statistic that came through this week was that 90% of our members have not registered yet. I know 90% of our members are not coming, and I'm not talking down to you because in the 90% are the Pollard family, so uh, <laughs> we need to get to that as well. So um, we were going to go through an exercise. There's these QR codes in the auditorium. It's it's easy as, as could be. You just, if you have a smartphone, it will take you right to that form, and you can just register. If you're planning to come, during the course of that weekend, uh, please uh, go ahead and do that. By the way, Sunday is part of the seminar, though we'll have our, our ordinary worship, so uh, we certainly expect to see you on Sunday for sure, uh, as well as other times. So please do that. If you have a way to set a reminder on your phone, uh, if you'll do that, uh, because I'm sure that this server problem that we're having with Google is short-lived, and it'll be back online uh, before we know it. Uh, and uh, it would really help us. We really are trying to prepare adequately uh, for what sounds like an ever-growing, uh, anticipated crowd. And, and so uh, we want to be prepared for that. And so much preparation has been done. So many are doing a lot to prepare for this, and I'm grateful for that, uh, as we all are uh, in, in that spirit of cooperation. What is available is a sign-up sheet. We did not mention that this morning. Uh, there, there was great success at CYC in uh, pitching, drumming, uh, equip. Several folks registered as a result of that. We had an even greater opportunity at last for leaders coming up in a few weeks. And so there's a sign-up sheet in the multi-purpose room in, over here uh, to my right or left. And if you could sign up for a, a ship, just an hour or two, to invite people who are there from uh, all over the southeast to be a part of that, that would be greatly appreciated. I love the song that Casey let us in when we all get to heaven. That's the ultimate goal. It's why you're here tonight. It is why you make the decisions that you make each and every day because you want to go to heaven. Not only do you want to go to heaven, but you want your family to go to heaven. And every decision that we make, large and small, is making a contribution in some way to that goal that we have out in front of us. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, God is sending some individuals, some messengers to Abraham to deliver the news that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son that was going to make Abraham the father of many nations and the direct ancestor of Jesus of Nazareth. And he sent those individuals to Abraham and Sarah saying, For I have chosen him, so that he will command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord in doing righteousness and justice, so that I may bring about what I have promised concerning him. Now God also tells this as part of his explanation for why he is going to break the news to Abraham, that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zavor, and the entire Rome Valley. Because of their wickedness. Righteous Lot and his family there, but they were surrounded by utter depravity. And that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah seems to have infected Lot's daughter's moral compass. Because they got their father drunk, and each of them, as the result of this, went into him, and they became pregnant with his child. Genesis chapter 19, verse 32 to 38. 
And as the result of this, ultimately came the Ammonite and the Moabite nations, enemies of God and individuals who were going to be a thorn in the side of Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. I want you to consider with me for a moment the contrast of legacies between Abraham on the one hand and Isaac on the, and Lot on the other. Here you have a man who is going to be the father of many nations and the direct ancestor of the Messiah. And on the other hand, you have a man whose legacy was going to be perverse daughters and wicked unbelievers. You know, all of us are developing, we are leaving a legacy. We're leaving a legacy whether we are trying our best or whether we're not trying at all. When we think about legacies, legacy is one of those words that really strikes a chord with us. You think about the secular world, there's so many legacies that are tied to families. You know, I spent several years in Denver, Colorado, and we had the uh, quarterback, Peyton Manning, there that's familiar to this part of the country, and he's part of a legacy. He, his dad was the source of my mom and dad's first five as a married couple. Archie Manning was quarterback for the University of Mississippi. Old Miss Rebels. And my dad, is, as I am, is a die-hard Georgia Bulldog fan. And Georgia couldn't beat Ole Miss when Archie Manning was there. And so my mom laughed when Ole Miss was winning. And my dad, he said he was throwing the shoe at the television set. But we're not sure where that was. There's a legacy. And now, of course, if you keep up with it, you realize that Archie Manning is going to the University of Texas. And so you've got this legacy in the sport of football and Manning faith. And sports have given us a lot of different legacies. But so is the military, and so is business, and so is politics. It's fame or infamy. But when we think about building a legacy of faith for our families, it can seem like quite a challenge. But even though it's a challenge, it's something that's doable. It is a challenge because we're trying to raise our families in a culture of unbelief. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said, there are no atheists anywhere but on earth. There are none in heaven, and there are none in hell. Even the devils never fell into this life because the devils also believe and tremble. But some of the devil's children have gone beyond their father in sin. I want you to think for a moment about what a seemingly impossible task it was for Abraham whose family itself was uh, an idolatrous family, who was leaving that and trying to establish a better legacy. And now God has given him or has given him this son of faith. And now that Isaac is here, God's been blessing Abraham's life and doing for him and protecting him and keeping him from harm. Now things are going to change a little bit. We read it says, It came to pass after these things. That God tested Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And get to the land of Moriah, and there offer him as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains that I will tell you of. But Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose, and he went to the place of which God told him. It came to pass after three days, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And he said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder, and we will worship, and we will return unto you. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he laid it upon his son. 
and the two of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and so he said, Here I am, my son. He says, See here the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And when they got to the place that God had told him, Abraham built the altar, and he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and placed him on the wood. And he stretched forth his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him out of heaven, and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not touch the lad, do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, because you would not withhold your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and there was a ram caught in the thickets by his horns behind him. And Abraham took that uh, ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And he called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said this day, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. In that text, we notice, perhaps more than anything else, the faith of Abraham. But if you stop to ask yourself, what was that faith made of? What constituted that faith that made that faith so strong? I believe that what we find as we begin to investigate that faith more closely are some elements that we need in our own faith. If we're going to have a faith that not only dies with us when we die, but lives on in our children and our grandchildren, then I believe our faith too needs to have the elements that Abraham's does. Well, you notice we've been just a couple of minutes tonight, the elements of Abraham's faith. How can we build faith for the future? The first element of that faith that we see is in verse 2. And it's love. At the very beginning of this text, you'll notice that God reaches out to Abraham and he says, Take now your son, your only son, a reminder that this is the, the child of promise, whom you love. It's remarkable. I'm not sure I'm not the first to tell you this, but this is the first time in all the Bible that we come across the word love. And what's remarkable to me is that the first time we see the word love, it is not reference to marriage. We've already had marriage instituted in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve did some beautiful marriages. They did not have marriage in Noah and his wife. But here, Abraham and Sarah, no doubt they love one another, but it's not used of their relationship. It is not used to speak of a love of country. It's not used to speak of a love for a brother. It's not even used to speak of a love for God or the love of God. The first time that we see love in the Bible, let's talk about the love of a parent for a child. And while it very clearly represents the love of another righteous father for his own begotten son, we cannot miss the clear contextual truth, and that is that Abraham loved Isaac. And that love affected his decisions. It affected everything about how he conducted himself in the home. You'll notice me that the focus of the text here is not on Isaac. As wonderful a character of study as Isaac would be, the, the, the idea here is that Isaac very sweetly and very simply followed what his father had to say, but the focus is on Abraham and the love that he had for his son. You know, if we were to conduct a poll tonight and, and were to ask you one simple question, and that is, do you love your children? I know the answer would be a unanimous and an enthusiastic yes. We love our children. We love our grandchildren. But the thing is, do they know that we love them? And how do they know that we love them? You see, we're in this struggle. 
our children will embrace and will accept if they know that we love them with Christ-like love. And there's also a lesson in that for those of us as members of the body of Christ. God's blessed us with so many young people. And even if we don't have, as we don't, children at home, and if we have children that are kind of vicarious, that are, are, are around. What our young people are looking for, what our young adults are looking for, is authentic, face-to-face -face interaction with those that they know love and care for them. What they need to see and feel from the preachers and the elders and the deacons and the other members is that they are loved with Christ-like love. And I believe that when we exhibit that, then our young people will want to grow and imitate a faith like that. When I look at Abraham and his faith, one of the elements of that faith is love. If we want our faith to live on beyond us, then our homes need to be homes where that faith is driven by love. Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 13, Brethren, you've been called to liberty. Only use not liberty as an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. But then second, I want you to notice with me that the second element of his faith was the element of submission. We see this element in verse 3 and following. First, the test is laid out there. I want you to take your son. I want you to offer him at the place that I tell you. And then you'll notice that there are three commands that are given to Abraham. If you'll follow them through the text, it's take, go, and offer. What I want you to see is that Abraham immediately sets out to obey God. It's the next morning. And verse 3 says, early in the morning, he takes Isaac, his son. That's the first command. And then he goes to the place of which God told him as the second command. And then uh, three days later, when he gets to the place that God told him of, he goes up on the mountain, he puts uh, Isaac on the altar, and he tries to obey the third command. And he tries to offer him up. And I want you to see that there's a picture in the text that it seems that Abraham rationalizes, he doesn't reason with God, he doesn't try to defend, he doesn't try to debate. Instead, he does what God said. When we think about Abraham, we think about his faith. He's justified by faith. And as uh, was read so well just a ago by Luke in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, he's a hero, an example of faith, but he's also an example of obedience. James chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. And what I want you to see is that this legacy of faith that's in Abraham is already being imitated by Isaac. How do I know that? A little help from the Apostle Paul. Because over in Romans chapter 4 and verse 19, it says that when Abraham has Isaac, his body is as good as dead, being 100 years old. Alright, so that's at the time of Isaac's birth. How much time has passed? Well, not exactly sure, but I know this. I know that Isaac is old enough to carry the implements of sacrifice, and he's old enough to climb up on a mountain. It seems clear to me that had he wanted to, that Isaac could have broken himself free and he could have kept himself from being offered, but he's already imitating the principle that he sees in his father, and that is that you obey God even when it's painful. You submit to his will. When you think about the legacy of faith that we're trying to build, we realize that we're going to live our lives necessarily imperfectly. 
came to see that we're striving our very best to obey God, to do His will for us. Mark came out with a study not long ago with a very provocative title, Are Christians More Like Jesus or More Like the Pharisees? And in one of the questions, they found an answer that, that 84% of, of non-Christian youth said that they knew someone who professed to be a Christian. But only 15% of them were living in a way noticeably that was good. It's a challenge to us that we're being seen. Our faith is. If what we say that we believe and what we preach and teach is important to us, it's making no, no noticeable difference in our life. We're sure to make these little ones in Him stumble. Luke 17 and verse 2. And so as we think about the example that we need, We'll be very careful that we are submitting ourselves. Because if our young people hear us condemning the sins of the world and they see us holding on to our pet vices and our bad habits, then not only will they be turned off when we finger point at others, but when we sing and when we pray and we preach that Jesus is Lord, it's going to be a turn off to our children. They're looking to see if we are owning our faith. You know, an interesting thing happens in Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul's writing about this, and he says that when Peter came uh, to Antioch, I was stood in the face because he wouldn't be blamed. Because before certain of James came, that Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when they of the circumcision came, he withdrew himself from them for fear of them. And he carried away others with this hypocrisy such that Barnabas himself was caught up in them. Now, Paul address, addresses that, and the sin seems to be racial prejudice. That may not be the sin in our home, but it could be the sin of gossip, or of bad language, or of materialism, or worldliness. Our children will see us stumble in certain ways, and what they need to see in us is us getting back on our feet spiritually, and being honest with them and saying, that's not right. We don't do this because we're children of God and we're going to submit to God's will with regard to this. But we can't do this anymore because it's contrary to the will of God. Submission is a very difficult thing. It's at the heart of discipleship. In Mark 8 and verse 34, Jesus says, If any man will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, I'm impressed. Two years before Kathy and I got married, uh, there was a, a story that was before social media and the internet, but it still blew up as a national sensation. The woman named Georgie Johnson, who was trained to run in the Cleveland 10K, and she was so enthused about running in this that she showed up at 8.45, and she lined up with about 2,000 other runners, and they fired the gun, and she took off. She'd been looking forward to this day, and she ran mile after mile, and then she'd been looking for the turnaround, and she didn't see it, so she turned to a runner next to her, and she asked, where's the turnaround? And looked at her like she was crazy. She began to cry. She realized that she wasn't running in the Cleveland 10K, she was running in the Cleveland Marathon. She had never run more than eight miles in her life, but through grit and determination, she decided, I'm going to stick with this. They told her there was a police car, and she could get there at the 13 mile mark, and at least just run a half marathon, but the police car was handling some other issue, so she had to run all the way to the end. And there were several reporters that day, and uh, Reuters and UPI and others carried the story all over the country. They asked her what she was thinking. What she said was, this was not the race that I signed up for, but for better or worse. This was the race 
if you're an adult, back to your five-year-old self, or maybe your ten-year-old self. And I want you to imagine what you thought your life was going to be like today. If you had any concept of what your today would be like. Now, what you imagine for yourself at the age of ten, is that how things have turned out for you? And in every way, is it just like you imagined it would be? You see, sometimes there are twists and turns in the, the road of life that we can't foresee. And it's at those times when things come along that we weren't expecting that we demonstrate not just to ourselves, but to our children and our grandchildren that when things are unanticipated, we still submit to God's will. And to help us with that, doesn't the Hebrews writer give us an illustration like that? He says, Wherefore, seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every right away and sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with patience the grace that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame that is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus submitted to the Father's will, and so did Abraham. And so must we. Not just for ourselves, but for our children, our grandchildren. So when you look at Abraham's faith, you're going to see the love, the love that he had for Isaac that drove him in his decision-making in the home. But you're also going to see his submission, his, his demeanor and his demonstration that said, not my will, but yours be done. How powerful for our family's family. Then there's a third element. I believe that our young people need a huge dose of this. And that's optimism. When you think about the, the, the state of things, how often do you say or think to yourself about how tough it would be to grow up in today's world? And there's a lot of different ways to measure that, isn't it? You know, I, um, when you want to talk about perhaps education debt, the latest statistic, the 2021 statistics, the last one had for the average college debt of a student who gets a bachelor's degree is $35,000 per student. If you get a, an advanced degree, the average debt below that is $9,000. The first generation in American history to say that they don't believe that they would economically have it as well as their parents was the millennial generation. They just interviewed Gen Z, a large uh, inter a swap or, or, or interview pool, in which they found the same thing. And you look at employment rates, you might have a reason to think that they uh, could be a little depressed. The unemployment rate for the millennials, when they went into the market, was 13.1%, and the national average was about 5 and of course, we had a little pandemic along the way, but they just measured that for Gen Z, and their unemployment rate is 15.1%, and the national average, 7%. And so if you look at it economically, maybe there's a cause for discouragement or depression. If you look at the political systems and institutions, perhaps none of us have a whole lot of faith in that, but those numbers continue to go down as generations become adults. Any way you look at it, there is at least over the heads of some of the nation's youth, there's this dark cloud of pessimism. What do they need from us? They need to hear from us the latest download of what's taking place per Fox News or CNN or wherever your choice of news is. Just let them know just how things are. And they're trying to get your eyes open because this is the world you live in. And so you're just going to have to just knuckle up and realize that the country's falling apart. 
everywhere and they're not going to find it anywhere else. When I look at Abraham's optimism, it certainly was not because of the external circumstances that he faced. I want you to think about how he responded to that. When we look at, at verse 5, he says to the young men, stay here with the young The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Wait a minute. God has said to Abraham, you go and offer him as a burnt offering. And yet he says, we're going to come back. How could he feel that way? How could he think that way? It's just what we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19. When we read about this, uh, the faith of Abraham, who offered up his only begotten son, in whom it is said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, believing that God could raise him from the dead. In which he did receive him in a figurative sense. Isn't this what Paul means in Romans 4.18 when he says that Abraham hoped against hope? You know, I don't think that optimism for our young people is telling them that things are going to be better politically, educationally, economically, or nationally. Whether it does or does not, could not be more irrelevant to our ultimate destiny, our future, which is eternity. We need to make sure that this message is loud and clear in our homes. And that is that no one has the reason for hope or optimism like a child of God. We're the only ones with a legitimate reason if we're following what God's Word has to say. Love is what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. We should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because we did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we shall appear. We shall be like Him, but we shall see Him as He is. And every man that has this hope in Him purifies himself, even as He is pure. First John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. You want to have a powerful impact on the faith of your family? Then let them see in your example that you're seeing the light is brighter and brighter. Why? Because you're getting closer to the sun. And as you live each day, you're helping them to have the same sense of that. And have to go through some difficulties. Paul says this, you who are weary, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed in heaven with His mighty angels, that day's closer today than it was yesterday. We're ever closer to the summit spiritually. And when they can see that optimism, when they hear that from us, what a powerful impact it's going to be on our young people. Not as we shy away from or shy from the sin problems that we need to address and to talk about expectation and duty, but there is a joy that permeates the Christian life that they need to see in us so that it will live on them. Now, Abraham is not this ancient figure of patriarchal period that's relegated along the road. I know this because 71 times in the New Testament we read about Abraham and often it's about his faith and his obedience. Abraham was leading a legacy of faith. It looked like a man, a parent, who loved his children unashamedly and made sure they did that. And that, that love included leading them to do what God wanted them to do. A submission themselves to the Father's will that they encourage their children to follow. And an optimism that no external circumstance could offset. Legacy. I don't know what that's going to be. 
I have no control over it. In the sense that I can't write it down and say, I want you to say this when I pass through this life, because this is who I am. It doesn't work that way. Legacy is a heavy matter. I know what I want it to be. But what will my life have led it to do? You know, we mentioned Lois and Eunice this morning, what a legacy. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Hey, Timothy, when I look at you, I see a sincere faith. I first saw it, it was first evident in Lois. Lois passed along with Eunice. Eunice passed along with Eunice. Kind of makes Second Timothy 2, verse 2 a very interesting passage. When Paul says, The things you have seen and heard of them of the witnesses, the same commit to faithful men that they may be able to teach others also. Hey, why not do that? And I hope. I'm a history nerd, and I like reading about things like inventions. Thomas Edison had this motivational idea he called the idea quota. And it called for him to create a minor invention every 10 days and a major invention every six months. And so by the time he died in 1931, he held 1,093 patents in the U.S. Patent Office. It's not like these weird things you've never heard of. You ever heard of the durable light bulb? That was Edison. What about the phonograph? Now, that means not very much to any of us, especially young people, but that was the invention that you had to have in order to get to download the music and streaming services by Spotify. You don't do that, you don't get that. How about the X-ray? How about the stock ticket? How about the motion picture camera? What a legacy. Edison, the inventor, that's how he's known. But we can outdo this. We can live a faith in our families in such a way that when this life is over for us and we're in eternity, that we enjoy the fruits of our legacy of faith with our children and our grandchildren who have imitated that faith. That's the can't touch them. <coughs> What kind of legacy are we leaving? Listen, it's not perfection, but it's striving to do the will of God. And not letting up. Because the world's going to be the world each and every day. We've got to continue to live by faith. This evening it may be that one needs to respond in their faith in Jesus Christ to become a child of God. The water's ready, they're ready to help you. You want to see us after service to do it in a more private setting? We'd love to help you do that. Perhaps in your walk as a father or mother, or in your home in some circumstance, you realize that you're not being the kind of parent you need to be. Maybe in your heart, you need to make a resolution that that's going to change for this day. And if you'll make that resolute change of mind in your heart, if your family will see that. Maybe that there's a father that's much more public than that, you need uh, you know, repent publicly, or maybe you just feel like I need prayers for others to help me to be the person that I need to be with Christ. We would love to have the honor to help you pray to God for you. This is your invitation. We urge you to come right now.